0: Welcome to Theatrically Speaking, almost a playwriting podcast. My name is Jonah Knight. Theatrically Speaking is a part of the Actual Story Podcasting Network. Learn more about this show and others over at actualstorypodcasting.com. If you have a playwriting question, if you would like to suggest a topic, or if you have a play that you would like feedback on, you can visit actualstorypodcasting.com to send us a message. This week, I have a conversation with screenwriter and author Jamie Nash. Jamie wrote the new book, Save the Cat Writes for TV. Save the Cat is a series of books that examines story beats and genres with the goal of helping writers think about the different forms that their story might take. Jamie and I talk about how playwrights might use these books. Links are in the show notes. Hey,
1: I'm Jamie Nash. I'm the writer of Save the Cat Writes for TV. I'm also a professional screenwriter and have written television, comic books, novels, all kinds of things.
0: Yeah, this is fantastic. Uh so theatrically speaking really focuses on the the playwriting experience and a lot of theater, but Save the Cat has been around for some time and you are the the current expert on this this idea, this series of books. And there's a lot in here that I think playwrights uh, maybe have heard about Save the Cat and maybe thought that it didn't quite apply to them. But in any sort of writing book, there's always something good there for writers. And I thought we'd try to dig into some of that today and see what we can find for for playwrights. Perfect. Perfect. No, I
1: I wrote one play. I've written one play in my lifetime. Um the, I'm from Maryland and the Baltimore screenwriting festival or screenwriting playwriting festival uh used to used, I guess it still exists and I remember I got all excited because they would pick like plays to workshop and uh, I decided one year I was going to write one and submit it and I wrote it and I remember you needed a 90 to get workshopped and I got an 89 was my <laughs> number and um and the worst part about it was, I had a friend who was a director and he really wanted to direct it. So I I probably could have re, you know did a revision and submitted it the next year and tried again. But somehow it was one of those things 20 years ago where I lost it on a hard drive. Ah. And I and it it kills me because I really liked it. Um anyway, but that's my experience that's my only experience writing a play. And I did I did a deep dive into all the books and stuff and playwriting. Um now I'm a big fan of the theater, so um I give it my best shot. But um that's my play experience. That's my theater experience.
0: Uh, it's good. It's uh it's more than most folks. <laughs> uh so I think uh if we're if we're assuming that playwrights are listening to this and uh and that maybe they've seen or heard about Save the Cat somewhere, but they may not have if they don't think it's a if it's got good stuff for playwrights in there, they may not know exactly what it is. So what is Save the Cat?
1: Yeah, Save the Cat's a book that it, well, it's a series of books now, but I'll, I'll kind of start with the origin story. It was a book written by a guy named Blake Snyder, who was a professional screenwriter. He's since passed. Um, he wrote it in, I think, 2007, and it it quickly became the number one screenwriting book. And it's still there to this day. Like his original book is still the number one book. Generally, I think most people, what they take away, they take away two or three things from it. Um, number one, it is its it has a beat sheet and the beat sheet is basically a template for an outline for a feature film. Um, and that, that beat sheet lays out, um, it it lays out several beats that you can fill in the blanks for, and we can talk about those in a bit. Um, but it's basically three act structure hero's journey kind of stuff. If you, if you know that stuff, it's kind of like a, a simple, uh, I don't know, very accessible, version of what Hero's Journey or before it, there was a book called Sid Field, uh, Sid Field's uh, screenplay um, laid out and Blake laid out those beats for people to help pull things out. So that's number one. Um, Number two, it also talks a lot about coming up with your log line, which is a single sentence that you should come up before you start writing your story, just so you know what your story is um he he has a whole chapter on that uh that those are a huge thing in screenwriting i'm not sure are they as big of a thing in theater do people come up with log lines
0: uh i think it sort of depends on the writer i think there's some there's some general advice that you should know what you're writing before you write it but not everybody goes with that
1: okay so in in screenwriting log lines are mostly known for pitching so when you When you actually finish your screenplay and you send an email off to an agent or a manager, most writers, that's when they first hit the log line. So what Blake said was come up with that before you write your thing. Um, And it makes the pitching much easier later because you have something that's actually pitchable. Uh, So log lines were the other thing. And the other big thing I think innovation he came up with, he called them genres, but they're really story patterns. They're they're like 10 types of stories you can tell. and they're, they're just like really high level, and we can talk a little bit. I think those could be useful in the theater sense. Um, there's things like Dude with a Problem, and Monster in the House, and Institutionalized, and A Fool Triumphant, and Buddy Love. And they're just types of stories like Romeo and Juliet might be a Buddy Love. Um, something like Die Hard is a dude with a problem, it's an innocent hero. Trapped in a big life or death situation, and that's a dude with a problem. He came up with these little handles, um, and and the one thing, the byproduct of Save the Cat, or the, the positive byproduct, it kind of became the language that a lot of screenwriters can talk to each other. Uh, so they all kind of know these handles. You can kind of have you can kind of communicate using the handles. It's a little shorthand uh, for various story things. Um, that you could talk about, and I, I'd be uh, remiss to say the books that went on. Uh, they there's Save the Cat writes the novel is a very popular book among novelists. It I I don't know I, I don't follow it closely enough, but it might even be the most popular um, novel book out there too. Craft book. I know there's some other ones like Story Genius and some other and some other ones, but Save the Cat writes the novel is very popular among novelists. And now, of course, there's Save the Cat Rights for TV, the one I wrote.
0: Yeah. So how did you become the author of Rights for TV? Like, uh, what was your relationship to Save the Cat so that this book came to you?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so um, Blake Snyder, the guy who wrote the original book, he was a professional screenwriter. And in my early days of screenwriting, I was in a online writers group um, and, and the the strange thing about this online writers group it really wasn't for sharing our material it was more for promoting it we kind of all band together to make a website which was back in the early 2000s cost money and you needed some somebody expertise in so we kind of had this shared website it was like this this gang of writers uh you know and we put it out there and hope people would come to it um I, I think I actually sold a script on that, uh, once as well. Uh, I think, I I think it was one I workshopped with you, Jonah, when I first met you, uh, adventures of a teenage dragon slayer actually sold off of that slate, I believe. Yeah. Um, so it was one of my early, uh, kids movies back in the day. Uh, so anyway, Blake Snyder joined that group. I can't remember exactly why, uh, because he had agents and big million dollar script deals. And, uh, he was working a lot with Disney at the time. So I think he just wanted like the friendship or the camaraderie or something. I'm not exactly sure why he joined it, um, or maybe he was just doing it for the next part. Um, he asked me to write a screenplay um, with him. Uh, he was he felt like for some reason back you know 20 years ago that maybe my sense of humor I wrote a lot of comedy would help with a particular kid script he was writing or family script, not really kids. So we got to know each other. And that was before he wrote the book, Save the Cat. So I was kind of, I always say I was involved with Save the Cat from the beginning. I was kind of the first cat, if you will, because he used his methods to write that screenplay with me. He he and I were, and he would, he would pitch this, that beat sheet stuff I was mentioning. So he'd be like, you know, what's the opening image? What's the catalyst? What's the midpoint? Well, what's the fun and game section? And those are things that you'll find in the beat sheet. So he would pitch that to me. And I didn't even know. I, I just thought that was the way Hollywood screenwriters talked. I, I didn't, you know, I thought, oh, he's got all these little corny terms for, you know, things that I know as act two or something. Um, but it turns out he was secretly planning that book in the back of his mind. Then he wrote the book a couple years later um and he kind of moved on into more of that than screenwriting i mean i think he was he was as into that as he was screenwriting um and, and not that i lost touch but i wasn't i was screenwriting full time and um he suddenly passed away I, I i think it was 2009 if i'm not sure if i'm not mistaken and he he had like i think it was like a sudden heart attack or something and he died um but his book went on his book continued And his friends who helped him publish the book uh, were always um, big friends of mine. They always helped promote my stuff. Um, They asked me to do guest blogs. Uh, Whenever I had a movie come out, they'd always have a page for it. Uh, So I had been in the family for a while in the Save the Cat family. And I'd even taught a couple of their seminars and things like that over the years. And when they decided to write the TV book, uh, they knew I was kind of doing that in my classes already. I, I also teach screenwriting at a college level. And a lot of my students these days are TV writers. So they asked me to write the TV book. That's the long story.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I think that, um, uh, you know, the one of the main things to take away from that is just, you know, we talk about networking and it can certainly go poorly if you're thinking of it as networking. But if mm-hmm. you're just mm-hmm. a person interacting with people, it's a lot easier to sort of make these relationships, you know? And Yeah. I mean,
1: you think about the weird connections there. You had a professional screenwriter joining some janky online screenwriting group uh, befriending me. I agree to write a screenplay. We write it together. We never even try to sell that screenplay. I'm not even sure that we ever completely finished it. It's on my hard drive somewhere here. Um, I, I, You know, and then years later, after he passes, the roots of the relationship I have with him uh, end up bringing me to write a book on television writing for the franchise. So, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of the yes end of it all. Uh, You know, if you keep yes ending, you'll eventually find your way to something. It might not be what you originally imagined, but um, oftentimes it can be fruitful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Save the Cat. Uh, and, uh, and how your book gets into some of these ideas. So for me, and maybe for playwrights in general, when we hear about the idea of a beat sheet or here is the recommended arc of a story and if your play doesn't fit these beats, then there's a problem with your play. You know, I think there can be writers that have maybe negative reactions to just the concept of a beat sheet. What is it about the save the cat ideas that you think sort of, uh maybe lays some of these things out a little easier or or what is it that that is more appealing as compared to other more prescriptive ways that people present beat sheets
1: yeah and and again i do i do come from film which which does have its um more rigid structures but i wrote the tv beat sheet which has less rigid structures so um i'll talk about that a little bit in a second. I'll start with film. Yeah. Um, film is rigid. I mean, th- most films are two hours long. You want a complete meal when you sit down. You're not thinking, I mean, it's changed a little over the years because now you have something like Marvel, which is almost like this continuing story, a continuing almost television series that just plays out on our movie screens. It's kind of serialized in a weird sort of way. But, you know, movies for years, for the most part, they're one and done. And if you have a sequel, that one's one and done as well. It's just kind of more of the same, but one and done. So there is a certain difference between that and maybe something that's serialized. Um, Again, I think a lot of what the advantage of Save the Cat is, is it it does a really good job of taking what came before it and distilling it in a very accessible way and easy to understand. Like... I mean, I shouldn't say this, but even if you didn't get the book, you could probably just look up the beat sheet, open it up, and in minutes, you could kind of figure out the questions it's asking you. So as, as you're brainstorming, um, if you had an idea for a movie or a, or a play or a novel or a short story or whatever, you could just open the beat sheet up. And it's almost like having a writing partner sitting across from you asking, okay, you know, we have a blank page. First question. How do we open? You know, what's the setup? Uh, how how are you introducing these characters? Okay, what's the thing? What's the catalyst? What kicks off the story? You know, and it's it's to me, it's always just like having that writing partner who's asking the questions, and then you can go back and forth, and sort of debate what what the right answers are. Um, it is prescriptive in that way. I mean, it is. There's 15 beats, and you're supposed to hit every one of them. You're supposed to just go in order. Uh, and hit everyone. in screenwriting. It's very, it, the first book was very strict. Like he said, page 12, that's your catalyst. It's always on page 12 and in film that's minute 12. So it was like minute 12, you hit your catalyst. Um, and he, here's the thing about it. He said that in his book and that turned some people off. Cause they're like, well, I've watched a movie and the catalyst doesn't come to page 30 or 25. Uh, or minute 30 or 35. Um so his page 12 thing turned people off a little bit. But most movies it happens around page 12. And he was specifically talking to screenwriters who are trying to sell screenplays for the most part. So it's it's really important that you start your story but you know around the 12 minute mark. Or otherwise people will be flipping through like what's this about? I don't even know because people are coming in cold and reading your material. And when I say people, producers, agents, people that will give you money and, and people you're trying to sell because screenplays are often pitches. Um, but he was really strict about page 12. But I think at, after becoming a teacher and, and, you know, I've taught classes a lot, I get why he said, do it on page 12. And the reason he said why to do it on page 12, because if I don't tell my students that, then they'll do it on page 12 two or 60 or 70, they won't do it near page 12. They'll they will they'll do it wherever they want. So you really have to, a lot of early writers are looking for clarity. They're looking for somebody to help them make some tough decisions because there's an infinite amount of decisions you can make while writing a story. So all that Save the Cat really does, it's helping you with clarity for like 15 of those decisions of where to put certain things in the story. And they're they're the story beats. But there's still an infinite amount of ways you can fill those beats, you can interpret those beats. I mean, the choices truly are infinite in my opinion. So, So to think anything's formula to me is, it may be a formula, but it's only the small portion of it that's a formula. And I, honestly, I've never read a script that from an amateur that I said, you know what, this is the greatest script I've ever read, or this is a good script. But man, this, it's so save the cat formula. I just can't get into it. I've never once said that. I mean, the problems come from character, they come from creativity, originality, dialogue. Um, just uh, sometimes they come from bad save the cat stuff, like slow pace, um, you, you know, not not really tracking with the character or not getting it. There, there are certain things that come. I, I have said, I wish this was more save the cat, but I've never said, I wish this was less save the cat. It just, because there's so many decisions that are so much more important that are going to win me over about your story.
0: Yeah. We've heard a lot in the last few years about... Um just uh, consumers or uh, uh, folks just becoming a lot more savvy about what to expect from story. And a lot of that is television and film. And I wonder if there's just something about a two-hour format, whether it's on stage or whether it's an audio drama, two-hour pilot or a film or something, where people really do start to feel weird if there isn't something like a catalyst somewhere around the 10 minute, 15 minute Mark. So whether you're writing it as a play or whether it's a, your, your two hour pilot or something, it's maybe less about sticking strictly to a beat sheet as much as if I don't do something around in here, unless that's the whole goal of this storytelling experience, people are going to start to get turned off. Uh, Are you finding that? You know, regardless of whether it's TV or film, that that that's what people expect. You 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 actually said one of
1: the things I bring up a lot, and it's not this is not something in Save the Cat. Something like a catalyst is what you said, um, and I find that that is what people are expecting. They're they're looking they like you say they know intuitively how stories work and how pacing works. And there are some stories that are super slow, or if you really break them down into three act structure, if you like look at it and say, okay, when does the hero have a goal or something like that? And maybe it doesn't happen to page 50 in that story. Maybe it's a horror story. And for the first 50 pages, they don't know what's going on. And they don't have a goal because they're just kind of experiencing. They're not, they don't have a lot of agency but what you said is key those stories that work that have late catalysts or late act breaks or slow burns they have things that are like catalysts at that 12 minute mark that something happens to kick the story off it's not you know my haunted house movie example it's not like they're just sitting around eating breakfast and going to work and mowing the lawn something happens at the page 12 12 mark um animation is one of my uh, I, I always say that if you really want to see something that's structured almost bulletproof, animation is usually the best thing to turn to. so if you turn to like a Pixar movie or something like that and because they have they, they have more time to revise and things like that to get the story perfect. Uh, they they'll throw things out they'll redo you know whole sections of their story. it's kind of like they workshop they, they put it on their on its feet and they workshop it over and over and over, but I don't know. There's a movie on Netflix called Mitchell's versus the machines that, uh, we broke down for a podcast. I do that breaks down, uh, movies by podcast called Raiders blockbusters, um, and Raiders blockbusters on it. What we realized was I think the catalyst in that movie. So that movie is about a family that goes on a road trip, that then the robots, uh, the robot apocalypse kind of comes like every machine turns against the world and starts to attack to win, win the world. So that, that apocalypse doesn't really start until the 20, 23 minute mark. So again, according to Blake Snyder, it's supposed to be page 12. So what you find in that movie, which is a great example of something like a catalyst, well, it's not a catalyst necessarily of that, that movie, because it's a movie about the robot apocalypse. The road trip is the surprise thing that happens around page 12. Uh, one day, the, the um, lead character, uh, she's a young girl about to go to college. She's going to go, I think she's going to fly to college. And dad surprises her. And he says, guess what? You're not going to fly to college. The whole family, we're going on a road trip. We're driving you to college. So it it's it's more the um, the John Hughes version of that movie. And then that story gets interrupted by the robot apocalypse, but it's something like a catalyst.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the big moment for me with Save the Cat that sort of uh, turned the light bulb on or made me think, hey, may, maybe there's something deeper here that I can use is the the way that Save the Cat talks about genres. And So we're we're sort of talking about this now, but uh, some time ago, I went back through all of my early plays to see if there were any gems there that I had forgotten about. And I realized now with the Save the Cat vocabulary that most of the plays that I had written within, you know, a certain number of years early on, all fell under the dude with a problem genre. Hmm. Hmm. And... And that like, uh, in case you're, you're not familiar due to the problem you mentioned earlier is essentially you have a, a protagonist who's sort of going about their life. Something becomes a problem. And then the story is about resolving the problem. Something I don't know. Is that, that's fairly, fairly yeah. close.
1: No, that's it. And, and the genres aren't that it's not like there's pages and pages of info. Your summary is about all there is to those, you know, that, there's not much more. There's a little more. Like, you might tick off, just for example, Monster in the House, which most horror movies are. I I do a lot of horror, so that's why I bring up a lot of horror examples. Monster in the House um, basically says there's a monster, there's a house that the, the hero is trapped in with the monster, and there's a sin that brings about the monster, and it checks off those three boxes. But then it might have some other hints, like, Sometimes there's a half man and a half man is somebody like Quint or something uh in jaws uh so it's somebody that's experienced the beast that has um knowledge of how to defeat it so um i think your version of dude with a problem is pretty much what there is in the book it's yeah. it's it's at least 90% of it yeah
0: and i i think it was eye opening to me that the way that I, at that time when i was writing plays i would sort of interpret this idea of the protagonist has to be proactive. They have to be actively doing things. And the way I sort of wrote all of those was with the same structure, where something like, you know, putting it on a road trip, you know, as a, as a golden fleece story, or even mm-hmm. with monster in the house or uh, institutionalized, maybe he's part of the army and there's a problem there. Like I just mm-hmm. did it all in the same way. And in retrospect, looking back at it, some of these plays would have been much more comfortable if I hadn't been using the same form. And it's not that I think I would have necessarily thought the next one has to be a golden fleece road trip story. It's that just knowing that these concepts can go in different directions makes a big deal in the way that you sort of think about where this story belongs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for you, um, having been a screenwriter and writing a lot and then sort of seeing this this list of here are the save the cat genres how did that change the way that you thought about your own stories
1: Mm -hmm. i you know what's interesting uh i didn't i didn't really latch on to them as much when i first read the book um and I, I was always a really good concept guy. I always was able to come up with, you know, high, what they call high concepts, like these kind of snappy pitches that I could just pitch. Um, and here's where I latched onto them, though. I latched onto them in two places. Um, one, I do think when you're coming up with concepts, they're excellent as brainstorming tools. Um, so, let's say you wanted to make a movie about you just you're just like you know what my next thing i want to write or play about i'm going to use movie though because that's my thing let's say let's say you wanted to write a story about a talking car <laughs> we'll just do something ridiculous it's a talking car movie yeah very blake snyder by the way because he he actually wrote the herbie uh the, I think the the last Herbie movie that came out, he was the first writer on it. I don't think he got credit. So we'll use that, Talking Car. Um, so, but I have no idea what I'm going to do with Talking Car. I don't know the pitch. I can kind of run through these and figure out different stories to, to use Talking Car again. So, you know, I could, I could go through it and say monster in the house, okay? So I have a Talking Car, it's the monster. Or, or maybe it's the hero, I don't know. But we'll say it's the monster. Um, so it could be like Christine. My talking car could be like Christine. It's a robot car, it goes out of control, becomes Hal or something, and we're in a parking lot. I don't know. This is this is me just riffing. This is how I yeah, as yeah. you can see, great concepts. Um <laughs> Golden Fleece, Golden Fleece. So a Golden Fleece is a is a often a road trip movie, often sports movies. So sometimes the 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 uh, the road can be metaphoric. It can be like a, a time. Uh so Golden Fleece is a road and a trophy and usually a team is usually the thing. I mean, talking car, Golden Fleece, my mind would go to Herbie. You know, it could be a race car story, something like that. Um, you could you could go to dude with a problem. Um, maybe you have a talking car. Um, maybe a hero gets a hold of the talking car, maybe he steals it. He's an innocent hero. And now the company needs it back. And that's a dude with a problem. There's an innocent hero. He's got a car. And the bad guys are coming after them. So anyway, you can see how I, you can, if you have a topic, you can kind of run through them and just do a quick brainstorm exercises with the 10 types of stories that there are. Um, Some of them might not make sense. I don't know. I mean, I think they always can make sense. It's kind of the limitation of your brain. Like At first, I'd say... Institutionalized might not make sense with talking car, right? But um, institutionalized is usually a group. Uh, there's somebody that needs to make a decision of whether they want to join the group, destroy the group, or uh, basically destroy themselves. Uh, that's that's usually the thing. I'm I'm sure we could come up with something if we brainstorm. You have something, Jonah? Do you have a institutionalized for talking car?
0: Uh, well, uh, so your talking car could be part of like a, of the, well, and this might be combining it with golden fleece. So it it part of a, a cross country racing team, but you don't necessarily want to be part of the team, but you still want to be on the race.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it could be, uh, we could have all kinds of things. Maybe it's, maybe we're in the military and it's a talking tank and the other talking tanks, uh, you know, it could be a, a lot of institutionalized our army movies. Um, you get things also like um One Flew over the Cuckoo's Nest or Training Day or, you know, they're usually there's some organization or something that somebody's a part of. Um, office space is one of the classic ones. You know, it's like, do I want to be part of this? Do I want to burn it down or do I want to destroy myself? Um, so I use them for brainstorming was a big way. And then the number two way I would I would use it for is Once I realized what I was writing and what the genre was, I would use it for research. Um, And what I would try to do is, let's say I was doing a Golden Fleece movie about a talking car. Um, I would try to get different things. I wouldn't try to get the talking car movie. I would try to get anything that fell into Golden Fleece that was the furthest thing from a talking car movie and I would research the heck out of how Golden Fleece stories were told, so then maybe I could bring how Field of Dreams or whatever—I I don't know—Field of Dreams is what I'm talking. About. Um, what, what Major League? I don't know, something like that. Um, yeah. I went sports um, or Lord of the Rings. I, I would see what I could borrow from Lord of the Rings to put in my talking car movie. Um, so I, I use them heavily for research. That's that they were the two biggest things brainstorming and research were my genre
0: uses. Yeah. So, Save the Cat writes for TV. Um, because it's a TV book, there's a lot of specific information in there about the craft and the career of TV writing, Uh, some advice and what to expect, and that sort of thing. And maybe, um, maybe the playwrights listening to this maybe their goal is not to go get staffed in a writer's room. But one of the things that's been happening with the pandemic is that a lot of playwrights have been taking their plays and is starting to adapt them into audio dramas. So I thought maybe what we could do is take a couple minutes and look at the ideas that you have in Save the Cat Writes for TV and think about how I might use it in trying to take my two-hour full-length play and convert it into some sort of episodic audio drama because that's okay. that that's been happening pretty lately uh quite okay. a bit lately okay very cool very cool but by the way i should say that many
1: theater uh folks many many playwrights have been getting jobs in writers rooms it's a very they almost seem cooler to some of the hollywood people like it's like oh these people they they know their stuff in a different way they can bring the character side they can bring uh the thematic side um so Playwrights have actually been sort of having a moment in TV writers' rooms. So, um, not to pitch the book, but if that that's ever been something that occurred, well, I'm here to pitch the book. Uh, <laughs> but it, it honestly, I am not, it's no joke that a lot of times when you hear showrunners talk about um, how they hire people, they're like, send a pilot or your play, they say, you know, send a play. Because writers' rooms, you don't necessarily have to know the form. So much, you have to be willing to collaborate with a group of other people, but have strong opinions about story and storytelling. So anyway, just a plug for your theater people. It it might be their moment. If they've never thought about TV, or if they enjoy TV, um, it might be something that they can transition into um, with their plays, without even really that much more knowledge than knowing how to write a play and how to be a good playwright.
0: Excellent. Yeah, well, I... I actually, I really hope that some of the listeners do that and, like, make a go of it. Uh, Sure. So I guess it's a... You spend some time in the book talking about the pilot uh, Mm -hmm. and really focusing on beginning the TV series. So let's say that I have my two-hour play. Okay. And we're just going to think about how do I change this? How do I make these initial changes to go from a single story, a single two-hour story, into maybe 15-minute episodes? Maybe... The the initial thought you have is well, I'll just take the first 10 pages or so, first 10, 15 pages of my play, and make that the first episode of my audio drama. Off the top of your head, like is that is that a good idea? Or what would you like? Do you have general advice without knowing anything at all at all about my play, about that idea?
1: Yeah. So and, and keep in mind though. The book is really focused on pilots. Um, And the reason, uh, I'll give a quick reason behind that. Television is written by teams of writers in rooms for the most part. So as an individual writer, the only thing you can really control usually is your pitch for the show and your pilot. Uh, So the book itself is very focused on pilots. and, and also that's how you break in as a writer. You you submit a pilot and that's they, they read that and that's how they figure out if they want to staff you or not. So the book's very focused on pilots. Um, and pilots that a new writer who wants to break into television needs to write have more um, restrictions. I, I wouldn't say restrictions. They have more needs that they have to surface, more boxes they need to check than a pilot by some famous, like Shonda Rhimes, like she wouldn't have to write the same pilot I would have to write to to take the next step into television, because she's already a known commodity. They know how great Shonda Rhimes is. They know what she does. They know she can write a season of television. Um, However, what I'll say, this is a long-winded way of saying, um, I think some of the things I talk about in the book, while Shonda Rhimes doesn't have to do them, most people are pressed to do them. Uh, Most people should do them for their pilots. And I'll give you what those are as we talk about your pilot. Um, So no, don't take the first 10 pages of your pilot or of your play and turn it into a pilot. That's a a really um, uh, risky idea. And usually it's because, assuming you have a classically structured play, that those first 10 minutes are... A lot of them are about meeting the characters, uh, understanding the situation, and there's not a lot of story being told um, within those things. So the the potential viewer may or may not be pitched the actual concept within your first episode of what this is. Like, if we go back to my like horror movie Haunted House idea... If I gave you the first 10 minutes of my horror screenplay, it might not have anything scary at all. It might be about a family moving to a new house uh, and a baby on the way. And while that's that could be interesting, if, if I was looking for a horror movie or a scary thing, I might be turned off by that. I'd be like, well, okay, I get this, but this is a drama and I'm not really interested in this. And I might turn it off. Um, On the other hand, if you like the drama, you might turn on the second episode and all of a sudden ghosts show up and that might turn you off. So um, typically in a TV pilot, in a first episode, you have to, it's, it it serves a bunch of different functions. It's a, it's a pitch for your show to the audience. Mm -hmm. So you are pitching how the show works, what it's about, um, how it feels, like, what it's going to feel like going forward. Of course, things can escalate. Um, It's a first date with your characters. So it really is getting to know your characters. And in television, um, and I assume audio drama has a lot of similarities. Um, It's really, you have to love the character. You have to know these characters because that's really what you're going to come back for through an extended audio drama. Audio, Audio dramas can be condensed almost into like, serialized film. So it's a little tricky because a lot of audio dramas are more like film and less like a television show because they're they're contained in maybe an hour, two hours with and then they cut up into half an hour or something like that, or 20-minute episodes with ads and stuff. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they actually do play out more like movies. Um but it, just using the television metaphor, um you have to meet the characters. Um and you you need usually your first episode should be a story unto itself. And that's the part I worry most about. If you just took the first 10 minutes, your first 10 minutes of your play probably isn't a story. It probably doesn't have a beginning, middle end and to really satisfy your, your listener in this case, you really need that beginning, middle end. It needs to have a twist. It needs to do all those things that a good story would have. Um, so there's, so, And then it has to have a cliffhanger. It has to leave them wanting more. There has to be something that in their mind, there's an itch you put in their mind that needs to be scratched by downloading that next episode or waiting for next week. So that's the reason I wouldn't just take your first 10 minutes.
0: Yeah. So even with something like that, uh, taking, taking my pre-existing story, adapting it to a new form, adaptations take a lot more work than maybe we think about, even if it's, you know, I have the rights to my play. I can do whatever I want with it. Well, sure. But this is going to be, it's not easy. It's not a a simple, well, I'll reformat it and then it'll be good to go as something else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, though I, you know, honestly I've seen effective plays that have sort of done that audio wise. And I think it is because this is my only caveat to all this is the fact that they can be very short. Um and, and you could just give kind of these quick bite-sized things that people may eventually just binge. So it might they might experience it as one thing, one story. Whereas if you're releasing it week to week or in a true episodic way where people are going to test it by I'll listen to that first one, and they click it on. Um that's really the true television model. Uh, and that that's where I think I think the danger can lie.
0: Yeah. I, and just from, you know, my, my personal anecdote is that I have a, a serialized season of podcasting story, and that episode one has significantly more <laughs> listens than episode two. And it's because people do just that. They're like, what is this? Okay. And I'm in or I'm out.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's why you really have to adapt it. You have to construct it. You have to know that first episode is a pitch. It has to do more than the first 10 minutes of your movie or whatever that is. You are selling, selling, selling in that first thing. Once you get to episode two or three, you probably got them. But uh, that first one, you got to, it's got to be the, the the story in miniature almost, you know, it has to have complete DNA of a story.
0: Well, as we reach the end of our time today, I guess I would ask if there's anything that you, uh, that from Save the Cat Writes for TV, maybe TV writing advice, that you think might be a little below the radar for a lot of playwrights. Is there something that, if I've spent my whole writing energy focused on how to create something for the stage and I've sort of been ignoring specific advice for tv writers. I wonder if there's something there that I might be able to pull over to sort of add a little spice or a little a little something different to some to to my next play.
1: I'm going to go with one that's more in relation to your audio drama thing. Okay. Cuz it's it's, it's a, it was a revelation to me. Uh this was a revelation to me. So what I discovered um when I was doing the book. And I think the people that hired me to write it thought, oh, you'll just take the save the cat stuff and it won't be too hard. You'll just go in there and it'll be the same and you'll break things down. And if you read the book, you'll find a lot of things were not that way. Um, So what I realized in, in the book, um, there are a couple key differences from original save the cat that I realized but one that's kind of fun that came as a shock to me and completely changed the way I write pilots and, and maybe this will be helpful in the audio drama sense is some of your stories have everything except act 3. Um so they have a beginning, a middle, and then just when you get to act 3 that's next week's episode. They stop right there. Um and I call that so in in save the cat terms again this might not be very helpful for theater but this is more for the audio drama side but again i it's just like one of my favorite lessons i learned from the from writing the book um in a movie you you have the 15 beats um when you get toward the end there's the midpoint the bad guys close in which is a section where things are tense The all is lost, which is the worst moment that can happen. A lot of times there's a death of a character or something like that. The dark night of the soul, which is kind of the wallowing after the all is lost. And then the break into three. And then after the break into three, you have the finale and the final image, the closing image. What I found in television is you get to the all is lost. And then the break into three, they make a decision. And that decision cuts to credits next week we will follow and that's how you keep them hooked cuz that finale is oftentimes a new goal or a more a, commi- a commitment to the goal or recommitment um so next week that whole episode will be about that you know and it's it doesn't always happen but it's something i saw that's very unique to television that you can you can you all, it's almost like they give you 75% of a story but they leave that that big chunk, the finale, cuz you can't always have a finale till next week. It, obviously not if you're going to have a show like Law and Order or something, you know, procedural. But this is for your uh serialized show like Ozark or something uh or uh maybe Bridgerton or something like that, which which kind of serializes over the course of a season.
0: Do you think that makes it harder to end TV shows satisfactorily? Like this this idea that we're not quite at the end. You think there's a finale, but it's not. You think there's Act 3, but it's not. It's really Act 1 of next week. Do you think that sort of roller coastering has an impact on satisfying finales for TV shows?
1: Uh, I I don't really think so, because you can give a finale at any time. Uh, or, you know, so what most television shows do is the end of the season, they'll usually wrap up a lot of loose ends. They'll, they'll wrap up. They'll usually leave some lingering threads for next season. Um, Some shows don't. Some shows actually literally just keep that that train rolling, you know, just like you're saying. Um, But I I think you can, especially if you know when you're going to end, you know, it's always a problem when shows don't know when they're going to end. Like Lost was the classic example when it got to the middle seasons and it didn't know when it was going to end and it just kind of spiraled. But I think when shows know they're going to end, they can use that those manipulative tools in the right way but also stick landings at the same time maybe not stick all the landings but along the way they can stick certain landings so all those itches that need to be scratched all those open threads eventually start closing off one at a time and then hopefully you get to that final episode and you just close it down the end you know so i i, I think there's definitely ways you can satisfactorily end things um especially if you know you're coming to the close and you're not just getting the series yanked out from under you and what what i think you see on some shows is every season they kind of wrap up most of the threads because they don't know if it's going to be the last season so they they keep a little bit of a door open it's not a total cliffhanger but they do kind of wrap the season you know, they kind of wrap everything up and then a little door open just in case. I, I think you see that on a lot of shows
0: too. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much for coming on and and talking to me about your book. Uh, I've read it and I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. And especially if you're a playwright that is sort of aware of Save the Cat, but you haven't really dug in, this is a good place to dig in. What are you up to now? Where can people find you? What are some projects that people can look for? Yeah, I mean,
1: for the most part, the, the project I'm working on is is the Save the Cat rights for TV, various things with Save the Cat. I've been doing seminars, things like that. So keep an eye out for those. The best way to keep an eye out is Jamie, uh, at Jamie underscore Nash on Twitter. Uh, that's probably the best way. Or you can find my website at jamienash.net. And I am J-A-M-I-E, as opposed to other spellings. Um, and I do have a movie coming out, but um, I don't know. I, I directed a short film as part of an anthology called Comedy of Horrors, but uh, I don't think it's available yet. So it's hardly worth talking about. Um, it's in the festival circuit right now, which has been totally messed up from COVID and stuff like that. Uh, but it's just opening up, so it's kind of like a year delay. The movie's like a year delayed because we couldn't do the regular circuit that we would normally do with a movie like that. But eventually you can watch that. But anyway, keep an eye on my stuff. You'll see. I'll, I'll post all about it.
0: Great. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was fun. Jamie also appeared on another actual story podcasting show on the podcast RPG anthology. Jamie is on the three episode story. They came from beneath the sea, a 1950s sci-fi comedy. Our theme song is Candy, licensed from the band Ketza, ketsamusic.com. Additional information can be found in our show notes and over at actualstorypodcasting.com. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.